So Psalm 111 says this, Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, as always, it's great to be with you together today and to be able to open God's word. As we do that, would you join me in prayer? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels, and crown them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, all animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, this morning we do confess that your name is majestic. Lord, we come to this place here today from a variety of different experiences, a variety of different backgrounds. Some of us feel full here this morning. Some of us feel empty and dry emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And Lord, we believe that you desire to meet us here. We believe that by your spirit that you desire to help us to see Jesus and remind us of the good news of the gospel. We believe that you desire to remind us of our identity in Christ. And so we ask that even as we look at this psalm, that you would do that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now in our weakness, that you would be strong. When our minds are cluttered, when our minds are distracted, Lord, we need, uh, we need clarity. And so we pray, Spirit, that you would do that today, that you would help us to see Jesus, and that we would leave here transformed people. We love you, and we ask all this in the name of your Son, and all God's people said, amen. Well, throughout life, we are all faced with decisions that require wisdom. And there are some people that would probably uh, say that their life motto is live fast and die young, right? The candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. But at the end of the day, I think that every single person would, uh, would want to say that they lived a wise life. 
Or to put it the other way, there's not a single person who would want, at the end of the day, on their tombstone to see it written, here lies a fool. We all desire to live a wise life, and we all face decisions on a regular basis uh, that require wisdom. Things like, what friends do we surround ourselves with? How do we choose friends? Where do we find them? How do we choose a spouse? How do we choose uh, what education to pursue? What employment opportunities? Do we stay at this company? Do we move here? Do I take this job? Do I stay here any longer? We're faced with all kinds of decisions like this about our education, about where we live. Do we live in this state? Do we live in that state? Do we move closer to family, away from family? What church family do we be a part of? What local church family do we invest in? How do we parent well? How do we grandparent well? These are all decisions that we face on a regular basis that require wisdom, and the question is, where does that wisdom come from? There's a lot of different tools that we can have in our uh, wisdom tool belt. Uh, Some of that is education, right? Education is good for gaining wisdom. Uh, So is learning from your life experiences, right? When you try something and you fail and it doesn't go as you planned, and then you have to sort of put your tail between your legs and try again next time. Right? Uh, we learn from those experiences, even learn from experiences where we do it right the first time, and that's great too. Uh, we can also learn from the experiences and from the failures of others. Uh, there's this phrase, you know, let someone else pay the stupid tax. Let somebody else make that mistake and learn from their mistake instead of doing it yourself when you could just see that it doesn't work if you looked at their life. <laughs> so we can learn, from, uh, learn wisdom from all these different places, and those are all great tools that we should have in our tool belt for learning how to live wisely. Uh, And what the Bible says, and what this passage in particular highlights, is that there is something even more foundational than even those things. More foundational than education, than life experiences, than the experiences of others, or anything else. More foundational to that, to living a wise life, is the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, is how this psalm sort of climaxes and crescendos. And of course, when the Bible talks about fear, and specifically in this psalm and the rest of Scripture, it doesn't talk about fear in this sort of like, you're you're petrified of God, you're horrified of Him, you don't want to be near Him because you're maybe afraid that He's going to, you know, if you screw up, He's going to come down on you. That's not the kind of fear that is talked about. It's not the kind of fear, like if you're really afraid of spiders, and you wake up in the morning and you roll over and look at the wall, and there's a massive spider on the wall right by your face, that's horrifying. <laughs> That's not the kind of fear that is, uh, <laughs> is talked about in this passage or in the Bible. It's not a horrified, petrified fear, but it's a fear that is, that is reverence and awe and worship. That's what the fear of the Lord is, is, is rightly seeing who God is and living in relationship with him rightly, which is to worship him. And so as we look at this psalm, what we see here is that wisdom is the destination The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the path to get there is praise. The path to get to wisdom is a life of worship. And so as we look at this passage here, this psalm leads us towards wisdom by giving us lots of reasons to praise God. That's what it does. It sort of lays out a whole bunch of different reasons that we ought to praise God, and as we do that, as we praise God, as we worship God, that will lead us to a life of wisdom. This is the foundation of it all. So there's a lot we could say, but we're just going to highlight three different things from this passage here, three different reasons why we ought to praise and worship, worship the Lord. So the first is this, we praise God because of his works. 
We praise God, we worship him because of his works or because of his actions. So if you look in verse two, the text says, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. So we praise God, we worship him because of his actions. Now this is something that we, uh, we're all familiar with this. We, a huge part of getting to know a person is observing their actions. Right? And getting to, you observe someone's actions and you may determine, I don't think I even want to get to know that person in the first place. <laughs> if they seem sort of mean or sort of grumpy, you would say, mm, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe keep my distance and uh, be in relationship with someone else. But observing someone's actions, not just their, hearing the words that come out of their mouth, but observing their actions is one of the ways that we get to know a person. And in the same way, in our relationship with God, part of how we get to know him and engage in relationship with him is by observing his actions, by seeing what he's done in history, seeing what he's done in the world around us, and that leads us to a greater understanding of who he is as we observe his actions. But the psalmist here, in this passage in particular, uh, sort of zeroes in, zooms in on some pretty specific things about God's actions, and what he zeroes in on is God's actions in salvation, God's saving and redeeming works in history. So verse four, after giving us this great or the works of the Lord, glorious and majestic are his deeds, it zeroes in in verse four to say he has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of nations. And so we see the psalmist here calling us to observe God's actions, his saving actions in history. So the language here of he's caused his wonders to be remembered. When you see that word wonders in the psalms in particular, a lot of times that refers to God's miraculous deliverance of his people. God's miraculous provision for his people is, is described as, uh, as the wonders of God. So we see here he's caused his wonders to be remembered. And as the psalmist thinks about, you know, as he tries to put together, as I think about God's saving actions in history, what is the thing that my mind lands on? And his mind lands on the Exodus. Now, I know that we're two weeks out of Exodus, and both of the sermons since then have talked about Exodus. And that's because uh, if, you're, if you haven't picked up on this, Exodus is a huge part of Scripture that carries and has echoes throughout the entire Bible. And so we see here, he's caused his wonders to be remembered. Another way to translate that is he, he's caused his wonders to be memorialized. So as the people are coming out of Egypt, God commands them every single year on this date, you were to do what? You were to remember that I brought you out of Egypt. And so God is commanding them to remember. He's building it into the life of his people that they remember his works, his marvelous deeds. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. You remember that from Exodus chapter 34 where in the face of the rebellion of God's people with the golden calf, God reveals himself as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, loyal, faithful covenant love. This is in, in, in response to the events of the golden calf after the Exodus. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him, which is likely a reference to God miraculously providing food for the people as they're wandering in the middle of the desert. He remembers his covenant forever. Verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. 
So we didn't see this as much when we were in the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus ends before this point. But in the story of the Old Testament, you have God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, leading them into the wilderness, giving them himself, giving them his very presence. And then from there, he accompanies them. He leads them into the promised land. He leads them into their inheritance. And so this is the trajectory This is how the story of the Old Testament goes. God delivers his people from the realm of death. He brings them into his presence, and then he accompanies them, and he gives them an inheritance. And so this is the story that we see throughout the Old Testament. And as the the psalm writer here thinks of what are these wonderful, marvelous works of God and salvation, the primary thing that he hangs his hat on is the exodus. God has delivered his people. He's crushed his enemies. He's given his very presence to his people, and he's given them an inheritance. This is the saving act of God in the Old Testament. Sort of the the ultimate saving act of God in the Old Testament is leading his people out of Egypt, giving them his presence, bringing them into the land, and giving them an inheritance. So this is why we should praise God, the psalmist says. We should praise him because of his works Not just his work sort of broadly in creation, but his specific works in salvation. The way that he has loved and cared for his people. He's provided deliverance and given an inheritance to his people. This is why we ought to praise God, because of his works. The second reason the psalmist tells us we should praise God is because of his words. We're to praise God, to worship him because of his works, but also because of his words. Because of his instruction because of his law, or because in this passage in particular, the specific language used here is the precepts, the precepts of the Lord. We should praise him because of his precepts. Now, it is somewhat unusual, and commentators notice this, it's somewhat unusual that the psalmist refers to the giving of the law or the giving of the precepts of God as one of his acts, as one of his works. Okay, so verse 7 Look at verse 7 and notice just the clear parallelism that we see in the poetry here. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. So the precepts of God, the giving of the law, the instruction of God, is described by the psalmist as one of God's works. Just like his work of salvation to deliver his people from Egypt, the giving of the law is one of God's works. Now, that's uh, maybe not the way that we would uh, typically think about it, but I think what's important for us just to observe is that the psalmist is holding these two things up side by side. He's holding up the saving, miraculous work of God in the Exodus to deliver his people, and he's holding up the giving of the law or the instruction of God side by side. And I think what the psalmist wants us to come away with is the psalmist wants us to be as awestruck by the law of God as we are by the Exodus, And typically we're not. We can all look at the Exodus and we're like, okay, this is so clearly for the good of God's people. We look at the Exodus and we say, man, for God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, to overthrow, to destroy his enemies, to lead his people out and to give them his very presence and to give them an inheritance, this is so clearly for the life and flourishing of God's people that they would no longer be under the tyrant of Pharaoh, but they would be under the gracious rule of their king, Yahweh. We can so easily see how that is for the good of the people. And then we come to the law of God and we uh, sometimes treat it like it's a necessary evil. Like, eh, it's not the most compelling part of scripture in my opinion. 
It's not, uh, it, you know, it's, it's maybe the part that you read at bed when you're trying to fall asleep at night and you just read the rule after rule after rule, right? It's not, we don't always look at it as this astonishing thing. But the psalmist wants us to see it that way. The psalmist here wants us to see and to be as awestruck by the fact that God gave his people his instruction. He wants us to be as awestruck by that as the fact that God led his people out of Egypt. And the reality is that we just, we simply aren't, we're just simply not astonished that God would give us his instruction, that God would give us his law. We, it's, it's, you know, it's just a, yeah, it's part of the deal and we have to, you know, it's just a part of being in relationship with God, but it's certainly not the most enjoyable part of it. But for the psalmist, listen how he says it, verse seven, the works of his hands are faithful and just, all his precepts are what? They're trustworthy. All of the instruction of God, everything that comes out of his mouth that he's given us as instruction is meant for our good, is meant for our flourishing, is meant for our joy, and they are all trustworthy. You can bank your life on it. Every single instruction, every part of God's instruction is for our good, and it's trustworthy. Now, on some level, we all would say, yes, I, I, I agree with that. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're likely going to say, yeah, I, cognitively, I believe that. I think we all sort of, to varying degrees, struggle to actually believe that the precepts of God are for our good. On some level, we all struggle to believe that all of God's precepts are trustworthy, When we choose to do what is right in our own eyes, as that first sin in Genesis 3 in the garden, where Adam and Eve chose to believe that God was holding back on them. Yes, God gave me this instruction, but you know, there's something more I need to actually be satisfied, to actually be fulfilled, to actually have life and identity. And so we believe God is holding back on us, and so then we choose to do what is right in our own eyes instead of what God has instructed us to do. And this is, this is the pattern that we find ourselves living in. This is the struggle of the Christian life of following Jesus is that we continually, we spend our lives learning to functionally believe by the way we act what we intellectually believe to be true. That the precepts of God, the instruction of God is for our good. And yet I find myself so often not living that way. And this is, this is the cadence of the Christian life is living in, is seeing those ways that we're choosing to do what's right in our own eyes. So just for example, you, you would take a place like the book of Leviticus where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And it goes even further than that when Jesus says, not only love your neighbor as yourself, but love your enemies. And we would see this is God's instruction for us. This is God's good word for us is that we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And then we so often find ourselves saying, yeah, but do you know what they believe? Yeah, but do you know what they're trying to do? Yeah, but do you know the way they've treated me? Yeah, but do you know, do you know, do you know? And we come up with all these excuses why it's okay to disbelieve and to not actually practice what God has made clear. And so this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is we have to learn, we learn how to functionally in our lives believe, okay, it is, it is a good, trustworthy thing that I would love even my enemies. Even if it feels unnatural, even if it feels uncomfortable, even if I don't 
sometimes even want to do it, I choose to do it because I believe that God's instruction for me is trustworthy, that it's good, that it's for my good and my flourishing. And so this is what the Christian life is, is learning to believe what we know to be true about who God is and what he's instructed us to. So we see the psalmist calling us to praise God, to worship him because of his works in salvation, because of his words given to us in his law, in his instruction. And lastly, we see him calling us to praise God because of his character. Praise God because of his character, because of who he is. Now there's lots that we could uh, focus on here. But one of the things I want to just highlight is the way that the psalmist draws out something about God's character and about his nature in this psalm. And it's that God is unchanging. So just notice, five times in this psalm, the word forever is used. His righteousness endures forever. He remembers his covenant forever. His precepts are established forever and ever. He ordained his covenant forever. To him belongs eternal praise. Another way to translate that is to him belongs praise forever. So you see the psalmist reminding us, reminding himself as he's writing this, that his righteousness endures forever. It doesn't change. He remembers his covenant. He's always faithful to his covenant. His precepts are established forever and ever. And so we see this beautiful picture of God being unchanging. Now, of course, we know that we live in a world that is constantly and rapidly changing around us. In fact, the only thing that doesn't change is that everything continues to change all the time, whether we want it to or not. You know, uh, technology changes very quickly. I was listening to a podcast the other week, and have you ever heard of this thing called the metaverse? Okay, so like within the last 20 years, cell phones have become like commonplace. Facebook is working on this thing called the metaverse. Okay, so virtual reality, you know, you stick, the, stick your phone in the thing and you put it over your eyes and you're, you live in this different world, right? Uh, imagine that, but social media, where you can't go visit grandma because she's a thousand miles away, but you both can put on your little goggles or put your phone in front of your face and live in this world where you can be kind of physically present with another person, but not in the same space. And I'm probably not even uh, telling you how awesome and crazy this is, but this is like science fiction. This is like two years ago, nobody would be like, oh yeah, metaverse, that sounds like a great idea. But like this is how quickly, like we go from cell phones to within 20 years living in alternate reality together with one another. And it's like, this is how quickly technology is changing. And it's mind-blowing. <laughs> and it's cool. And it's horrifying all at the same time. So technology changes rapidly. The culture around us is continually shifting and changing in some ways that are for the better and some ways that are for the worse. But culture is constantly changing around us. Our political landscape is continually changing and shifting around us. Nations are constantly changing. Thinking of the events of the last couple of weeks with what's happening in Afghanistan and seeing mothers trying to hand their babies over barbed wire fences to American soldiers because there's a greater chance to live if they give them away than if they stay there in Afghanistan. It's heartbreaking. And it shows you, we as individuals, we are so fragile. And families are so fragile. And nations are fragile. We think that there's stability with, you know, there's 325 million people here, we're stable. Maybe, maybe not. Nations are fragile. Our bodies, are changing. 
as you get older, your body continually changes. And almost none of it is for the better. <laughs> right? Like you're constantly losing certain functions or losing certain mobility, losing certain ability to like, oh, I used to be able to get on the floor and play with my kids and now I can't, my knees hurt now. And I used to be able to, you know, go out for a jog and I can't do that anymore. And I used to be able to do this. And all of a sudden it's like, man, my body is just falling apart. And this is just like normal life stuff. This is not even like you have chronic illness or chronic injury. This is just like what it is to be a human, is that your body is constantly changing. And so everything about our world, including us, is constantly changing. And in the midst of that, you have the psalmist telling us the good news is that God does not change. That is the one thing that we can, that we can hold on to, that is our anchor in the midst of a world that is going a million miles an hour that's constantly changing. When everything is changing, the psalmist reminds us God does not change. He doesn't have to change. And the reason he doesn't have to change is that there is no set of circumstances that can derail his redemptive purposes. God doesn't need to change to adjust to what's happening in culture. doesn't matter how good or how bad it is. God does not have to change in order to bring about his purposes in any culture in any place in the world. God does not have to change. He does not change. He works. This is the story of the Bible is that he works in and through and in spite of the worst kind of circumstances you can possibly ever imagine. God's son comes and is executed as a criminal. And everyone looked at it and said, look at this. This is a giant, massive failure. And it was the execution of God's son that God orchestrated, by the way, that God used to be the thing to deliver his people. So the story of the Bible is that God does not need a certain set of circumstances to be present for his redemptive purposes, for his gospel, for his kingdom to go forward. So we see this picture of God, he works in and through and in spite of the worst circumstances, and as the psalm says, he remembers his covenant forever. Now we know this to be true because we can read what this psalm says, and we know it in an even in a way that's different, that's unique from what the psalmist here even knew. Because the psalmist didn't have, the psalmist didn't know what we know today. The psalmist couldn't see the fullness of God's plan in the same way that we can see it, sitting where we are in this place in history, living after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we get to see in the person of Jesus that everything that is true about God in this psalm is something of, of a shadow, something of a foretaste of something that is better even to come. And we see the fulfillment of this, the completion of this in the person of Jesus. We praise God because of his saving works and because of his saving actions. Remember the pattern that God delivers his people out of the realm of death, out of the realm of darkness, brings them into his presence, and gives them an inheritance. This is precisely what God did by sending his son Jesus for us. God himself took on human flesh and joined us in our humanity and he suffered and he died in our place for our sin. He sat under the justice of God and the third day he rose from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that proved, what it demonstrated was that he has authority, complete authority over sin and death and the evil one. They have no claim on him. 
And the good news for us is the Bible says that those of us who trust Jesus by faith, we receive the gift of God's spirit. We get to be in relationship with him. And what is true about Jesus is also true of us. Because we are now identified with him, we are in Christ, is what the New Testament says. Because we are in Christ, death and sin and the evil one have no power, have no claim over us either. Because we are in Jesus. And so this is the greater deliverance that the Old Testament exodus pointed forward to, where God led his people out of the realm of death, gave, him, gave them himself, and gave them an inheritance. And you come to the person of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul says it like this, that, that God, that we've been delivered out of the realm of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. And then later we're told that we have an inheritance that can, ever, can never perish, spoil, or fade that's being kept for us. So in Jesus, we have the fruition, we have the fullness of all these promises that we see uh, just, just a glimpse of in the Old Testament. So we see in Jesus that we praise him because of his saving works that is most clearly expressed in the person of Jesus. We also praise God because of his words, because of his instruction. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The word of God come and taking, taken on a human body. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to get rid of it. I've not come to do away with it. No, I've come to bring completion to it. I've come to fulfill it. Everything that was required of us in the law, Jesus perfectly lived that life. Jesus perfectly lived a life where he loved his father with his whole heart, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. Everything the law requires of us, Jesus perfectly embodied, and he did so for us. And so we praise God in his son Jesus because the word has become flesh. And lastly, we praise God because of his character, because he is unchanging. And in the person of Jesus, this is, this is what we see. We see in Jesus the unwavering commitment that God has to keeping his covenant promises. The promise that God made to Abraham that he's going to give him a land He's going to give him an inheritance. The promise God made to Adam and Eve that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. The cross of Jesus shows the lengths to which God is willing to go to keep his covenant promises. God kept his promise at great cost to himself by sending us his son, by absorbing the sting of sin into himself. And this shows us that God is unchanging He's unwilling to, he's unmovable in his commitment to bring about his redemptive purposes, to crush the head of the serpent, serpent, to bring salvation and healing and renewal to his people. And this is what we see most clearly in the person of Jesus. So everything we see about God in this passage, we see that Jesus completes that. Jesus brings that to fulfillment. Jesus is the truer, greater expression of everything we see about who God is in this passage. And so the response then that we ought to have is that we worship him. The psalmist says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. And so our response then is that we, likewise, we extol, we praise, we worship God for who he is. And of course, this is the beginning of a wise life when our lives are given over to worship and allegiance of God in the person of Jesus. This is where a wise life begins. And so we worship him, we praise him, we give ourselves to him. And one of the ways we do that here at Elmwood is every week we take communion. We come forward and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. 
which is a, a, a reminder of the gracious gift that God has given us. Those elements, they nourish us. Christ meets us at the table. And this is one of the ways that we get to remind ourselves, to, to preach the gospel to ourselves, as it were, is we come forward physically out of our seats and we receive Christ. And we do it over and over and over and over again because receiving Christ and living with him in relationship with him, living with him as, as king of our lives is not a one-time decision. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment decision. And so this is one of the ways that we practice that here at Elmwood. And as we come to the table, I'd like to invite you just to take a moment of uh, quiet reflection and confession, and then I will invite you to come forward and receive Christ at the table. But take a moment of silent reflection and confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess that we have not viewed all of your precepts as trustworthy. By the way that we have lived, Lord, we have demonstrated that we believe there's a better way. By the way that we have lived, we believe, have demonstrated that we believe that you are holding back on us and that we need something besides what you have already given us for life and flourishing. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.